If you will, please turn in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 14. And as you turn there, listen here to this. Uh, the Lord Christ, when He was on earth, would, when He would bring difficult sayings and things to people, He would often end with the phrase, those who have ears, let them hear. And in this passage, at the very end, in Luke chapter 14, we have the same phrase. So we know that He's about to bring us things where we are going to need to have the ears to hear what He is going to say to us. So this is Luke chapter 14, beginning in here in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, it does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Lord, indeed, these are hard things that we have just read. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You are watching your favorite television show, and the commercials start. And there may be some that you take no notice of, but there are those that I like to call the, the miracle drug commercials. The ones that are said to cure cancer, diabetes, or any number of ailments, they're meant to be the the thing, the thing that is going to uh, solve all of the problems that you currently have. But then at the very end of the commercial, after you see testimonies of people walking with their dogs and their children out in the nice, beautiful orange sunset, all happy, all smiling, At the very end, you see a rapid lightning-type phrases right at the end. All of these disclaimers come up. Disclaimers such as vomiting, invasive fungal infections, liver problems, blood reactions, heart failure, 
maybe even a worsening of your current issues. And you're getting bombarded with these things. And that picture that you were presented with at the beginning, now after all of that, you begin to wonder, perhaps this drug isn't all that it's made out to be. And that's a, what we've got going on in, in here in Luke chapter 14. We have these crowds. They've seen the miracles of Christ. They've seen Him feed the 5,000. They've seen Him cast out demons. He's healed the leper. He's given sight to the blind. And so there's this infomercial of all of these amazing things. He looks like this miracle God-man who is able to solve everyone's problems. And Jesus here in Luke 14 is bringing the disclaimers. But not at the end. He's bringing them front and center. Because He wants those who are wanting to follow Him to know the kinds of things that it is going to cost them. And He wants them to be absolutely all in and willing to forsake everything. Absolutely everything if He calls on them to do it. And the very first thing that we find in Luke chapter 14, the first cost that we are called to, to consider if we are to be a disciple of Christ is found here in verse 26. Verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life cannot be my disciple. So the first requirement to be a disciple of Christ is that you are willing to forsake all of your earthly relationships. But this word here is interesting, isn't it? The word hate. This is not the first time that we have seen this appear in the text. There are other places where this dynamic is taking place. We could go to Genesis 29, where we read that it is Jacob who is loving Rachel, but he is hating Leah. And there are other places we could go to as well in the, in the, throughout the Bible. But when Jesus is coming with this idea of to hate, it's not the hatred that you and I have for those who are driving on the road down on the street here and they just cut us off and we get angry. Or we want to swear at them or any kind of rage or burning hatred. But it's more of a, a love, a higher love that those people in this context don't possess. And we know that Jesus is saying that you must hate your father, your mother, your sister, brother, even your own life. That is to be as hatred in comparison to your abundant love that you have for your King Jesus. It's to look like hatred in comparison. He is not going to take second place in your life. He refuses to do that. He is the King of glory. And so when He is saying to you that He must hate father, mother, sister, brother, even your own life, it's because He must be preeminent, and he must be first. You might come back at me and say, well, isn't this the same Savior that said you must love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? This is true. This is the same 
This is the same God man that is saying that. How do we reconcile these two things? Even Malachi 4 6 says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And yet here, he, it seems like he's trying to divide families. But in Malachi, he's coming to restore them. Or he is coming to, to reunite people. How can these two completely opposite things be totally unified and both simultaneously true? It boils down to our understanding of what he means by hate, that it is not a hatred that we think of, but it is one of degree and function and extent. But it doesn't just say that we are to hate our family, does it? Maybe that's easy for you, because maybe you just despise your family. Maybe they're hard to deal with. Maybe they're hard to love. And so for you, the thought of hating them isn't really that big of a deal. But then Jesus comes with this second thing here. He says, not just supposed to hate your family, but then you're supposed to hate your very own life. Okay, now, now we got a problem here, Jesus. Again, think about the context here. He is speaking to a massive crowd in front of him. They are hearing this for the very first time. This is not a brilliant way to find recruits, is it? It is not. This is the worst marketing technique that you could think of. But he wants you to understand the cost that is going to be had for following him. Hatred of your family. Hatred of your life. And we see this in other contexts as well. In uh, Luke, in, uh, first, sorry, 1 Peter 4, 2, it says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then John twelve twenty five says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Or even here in 2 Corinthians 5.15, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. These passages are giving us an understanding that our lives are to be forfeit They are to take second place to whatever it is that Christ calls us to do. And there are many ways that we can apply this. When you you as a husband are asked from your wife to do something that you know is abundantly wrong, you are to obey Christ. And you, wives, if your husband comes to you and tells you something that you know is wrong, in which your King Jesus would not be okay with, you are to follow your King Jesus. And there are countless other applications of this text. Countless other applications of this idea that we are to forsake our earthly relationships. He demands everything. And you are to give Him your absolute all. So we come now to verse 27. Verse 27 reads, Whoever does not bear his own cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here, we're not just to forsake our earthly relationships in our life, but now we're called to forsake our earthly rights. And this idea of forsaking our earthly rights is depicted by the very grotesque image of the cross. A torturous, barbaric death displayed to all who are present there. You and I have never seen a crucifixion, but to the audience that were right in front of Jesus, they knew. They were in Roman territory. They, had, they were, would have seen crucifixions. They would have seen the barbaric nature and the agonizing, excruciating torment that that was as they saw men carrying a cross after being beaten and whipped, bloodied, and then having the most humiliating death, naked, before the public square where they would die and breathe their last. Here is what he is calling you to do. To forsake your earthly rights, to give up all of those things that you hold most dear to you. Even your life. To be a disciple is to be one who possesses nothing. Is to be one who is as if, to put it this way, is to be as a dead man walking on his way to death. This was what they heard. This is what they were presented with. A man stripped, deprived of all rights, mocked, on his way to a grueling death, condemned to die with no way of escape. So Jesus was saying here, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to be ready and willing to give it up and to be willing to die. To be mocked, to be ridiculed, to give up all earthly comforts and freedoms and rights for the sake of Christ. This is hard. There was a Christian missionary. Her name was Maybelline Williamson. She wrote a book, Have We No Rights? And at the very end of the chapter, she says this. He had no rights. No right to a soft bed and a well-laid table. No right to a home of his own, a place where his own pleasure might be sought. No right to choose pleasant, congenial companions, those who could understand and sympathize with him. No right to shrink away from filth and sin, to pull his garments closer around him and turn aside to walk in cleaner paths. No right to be understood and appreciated. No, not by those whom he poured out his life for. His only right was silently to endure shame, spitting blows, to take his place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins and anguish on the cross. He had no rights. And I? A right to the comforts of life? No. A right to physical safety? No. A right to the love and the sympathy of those around me? 
No. A right to be home with loved ones and those who are dear to us near? No. All that he takes, I will give. All that he gives will I take. He my only right. I have full right in him. Here, Maybelline is picturing this beautiful understanding of what it means to give up all of your earthly rights. These things that we as Americans treasure. You are an American. You have liberties. You have freedom. You have rights. I have rights to do this. I have rights to do that. But to be a, to be a follower of Christ, you are giving up all of your earthly rights for Christ and His kingship and His kingdom and His glory. That is what you are called to do. Not to pursue liberty. Not to pursue freedoms of this dying, passing country that will that will eventually crumble. But to pursue Christ and to give up all of your earthly rights for Him. And He is not doing anything. And He's not asking you to do anything less than which He Himself would soon do in a few chapters later. He is presenting the very image of the cross to you that He Himself would take upon. And He would die that gruesome death. That He was telling His disciples there, that they may be asked to do, and you here today as well. He gave up the crowns of heaven for a crown of thorns. He gave up the glorious robes of heaven for rags, the rags of men. This is a total commitment Absolutely all in or nothing. And he refuses to take any less. And then we come to two illustrations here that Jesus gives here in the text. Here in verse 28 to 30, we, we find a, a, an illustration of a guy who starts out to build a tower. And the point behind this illustration is that it would be very foolish for the individual who is seeking to build the tower not to first plan to make sure he has enough money and can complete the project that he sets out to do. Because if he starts and he doesn't have all the things that he needs, there's just this tower, empty, unfinished, from which people can look at and simply belittle him because he was too dumb to count the cost prior to starting the project. And then the second, we have an enemy who is coming. We have 10,000 individuals on the one army and then 20,000 on the other. And the captain is wondering, well, do I have enough power and enough force to beat the army that's coming against me at 20,000? Because he knows that if he doesn't, he needs to send a messenger before the attack, so that he does not get completely destroyed. In both of these situations, counting the cost is what Jesus is pulling out here. Counting the cost of of giving up our earthly relationships and even our own life, of counting the cost of giving up our earthly rights that we often treasure and hold on to with vice-like grips.
When you're at your workplace, and you may be praying by yourself, others may mock you. They may say, look at this guy, praying over here to some dead God. Are you willing to be mocked for that? You might get ridiculed and laughed at by others behind closed doors because they know that you are a Christian and they think it's complete foolishness. Like, man, look at that guy. He's wasting his life. He's wasting his life on a dream. That's when we look at the people who are daydreamers. They're not, they're not really right in the head and we, we have pity on them. Maybe some of your coworkers think that way about you. Are you willing to to be ridiculed, to be mocked at, to bear that cross. These are some of the things that it looks like. And then we come to the last thing that Jesus gives here. He's already told us to forsake our earthly relationships. He's told us to forsake our earthly rights. And now He comes here in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you and he is not just speaking in, he is not just speaking to the crowd right now, but through space and time he is speaking to you. You are in the crowd that he is speaking to. And he is saying, "If you here today do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot be his disciple." And we know from the Greek word that is used here, apotasso, that it is in fact referring to earthly treasures. We often take security in this. We think, well, you, are, you and I are measured by the value of how much money we have in our account. Your security, your sense of peace is found in how much money you have and the wealth that you've stored up for yourself and your estate. You and I know, and Jesus knows, that the earthly treasures of this world are a major temptation. Major temptation for those who are seeking to be his followers. He says in multiple times, he says, you cannot serve two masters, for it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying you can't be rich and be his disciple, but there is, a, there is an innate danger to wealth that you must recognize. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but your treasure should be stored up in heaven. And then he even makes this statement that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Is it in the value of your bank account or your 401k? Is it in the stocks that rise and fall with each day? Or is it in the the God-man Christ that is standing before you, telling you, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in saying that, it is His desire that to you, He would be the greatest treasure 
in all of the world. And that you would prize and value him above anything else and anyone else that has ever, li- that has ever lived or ever will. Because he is greater than all of those things. He is a treasure beyond our wildest imaginations. Why would you not give up your earthly treasures when you can have him? You could have nothing and yet have everything abundantly more than what the richest man that has ever lived could ever begin to fathom with his wildest imaginations if you have Christ. We are to be detached from our wealth. The Lord gives it to us as a gift, but it is a tool. You and I are mere stewards of these things, not the owners of them. Do you recognize that? You don't own anything if you are Christ's disciple. Your money, it's His. Your cars, they're His. Your wife, well, she's His. Your children, they are His. This church building, this is His. The chairs that you are sitting on, they're His. Every single thing is Christ's. It is to be used for His glory. And that when He gives us these things, they're not to be used for our own selfish desires, but they're to be used for the building up and the growing of the body of Christ. How you use your money says a lot about you. Because he's not just Lord of the tenth, but he is Lord of it all. Do you give him all of it? Your legacy should not be how much money you can store up by the time that you desire to retire. You should strive for a legacy where people could look back on your life and say, he gave so much money to so many different things. He used it or she used it to build up others. Have you thought about that? Instead of using it, your money for you, are you intentional about thinking, how can I use it to serve others? So our earthly relationships, forsake them. Our earthly rights, forsake them. Our earthly treasures, we are to forsake them. All of this seems too much sometimes, and too hard sometimes, and too much of him to ask us. But look here again at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. The crowds are there before Christ. Why? Why are they there? 
Well, we already found some. We already know what some people are there for, which is why he's coming to bring these things before them. But there are some who are before Christ who are sitting there hearing the things that he is asking them to give up. And they are saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's all right. Whatever it is that you want me to give up, I will give it up because I see who is before me. It is the, it is the God-man whose lightning bolts cleave cliffs in the sky. It is the man who creates rivers of, of water, streams of living life. It is the bread of life. It is the King of glory who is coming to die for His people, to give His life for you. You who are dead in your trespasses and sins. As we heard today in Romans 6, dead and yet alive. And they're sitting there and saying, I don't care what what it costs for me to follow Christ because I see and behold all that He is and I am saying I will give it all up. Absolutely everything because He is supremely and absolutely and totally worth it. Absolutely everything. Christ. I'll give it up. Can you say that? Absolutely all. Father, we come to you. Make us salivate over Christ, longing for the riches of heaven. Longing for as Psalm 16 says, in you there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore and that all of the things of this world, if we are holding to them, may we never find pleasure in them because we're only going to find pleasure in you. May we give up our earthly relationships. May we give up our earthly rights and our earthly treasures. Help us, Lord. We are so weak. Enable us to walk in the ways that you are asking us to here in this text. And give us your spirit. And give us your power because it is through your spirit and through your power that just as Christ walked in these ways, we can too. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.